long passage. Let's pray again as we come to God's word. Our Lord, we praise and thank you again that your precepts, your commands, your word, um, your instructions are light to our eyes. Um, They are radiant. And so we pray that you would guide us into your light that we might um, find true life and live to your praise and glory. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a remarkable archaeological discovery was uh, made recently in a spot not too far from here in Chipping Warden. Um, The remains of an old Roman settlement were unearthed during the work on the HS2 rail project. Um, And what they found included jewelry, hundreds of Roman coins, scale weights, glass vessels, fine pottery, at least four wells, domestic buildings, workshops with kilns where metalwork and bread making and pottery likely took place, Uh, a well-preserved 10-meter-wide Roman um, road. Apparently, most Roman roads were about four to five meters wide, so it seems that this road was the Roman equivalent of a, a dual carriageway. And remains of cosmetics were also found. There were traces of lead sulfide in the soil, which used to be crushed up and mixed with oil to make makeup. It's all evidence of a once bustling and thriving place, perhaps a significant trading hub. Like us, they built communities, they bought and sold things, they beautified themselves, they worked and played, made friends, had families, hosted guests, tended gardens, took up hobbies, told stories, educated the young. And yet, The remains of their lives lay in the ground, covered in dirt, uh, hidden just half a meter below the surface for many hundreds of years, if not over a thousand years. It's a striking and somewhat sobering thought. Who were they? What were their names? What did they do? What were they like? Who did they live for? Where did they go? Well, last week we were introduced to the book of Ecclesiastes, a, a sermon-like set of instructions spoken by the teacher. And right from the top, we heard that everything is hevel, uh, the word translated meaningless in our Bibles. Life under the sun is ungraspable, it's elusive, it's temporary, like grabbing at smoke that escapes through our fingers. In the same way that the people who lived in that Roman settlement worked and played, wept and laughed, mourned and danced, and then the earth covered them over, so will we be. And at first reading, I I know, because some of you have told me, um, that how, how gloomy that initially sounded. Ecclesiastes 1 verse 11 again, there is no remembrance of men of old, and even those who are yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow. Isn't that just good old-fashioned nihilism, the belief that nothing really has uh, meaning or existence? Well, no. As I hope we saw last Sunday and in grow groups through the week, accepting Hebel is one of the first steps to really living. Because it challenges the illusion that we are self-created, self-determining, self 
governed. It reminds us that we are, in fact, creatures uh, with purpose, specially made by, by a creator in whom all goodness, wisdom, power, and love is found. And in today's passage, the teacher takes us deeper into those realities. In fact, from verse 12, he now speaks autobiographically in the, in the first person. And he takes us on a quest for meaning through his lived experience, uh, testing the fabric of human life, showing us how everything under the sun is hebel. But he doesn't do that to leave us depressed. He does it so that we might know how and where to find true joy, satisfaction, and wisdom to live. So let's follow his quest for meaning. First, the quest for meaning in the pleasures of life. Ecclesiastes 2 verse 1 again. I thought in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. We've started giving our children pocket money, um, but I've noticed that these days, when there are fewer local shops around and most place, uh, places only take contactless uh, payment, it's, it's less fun to go out and spend your pocket money. Uh, with my pocket money, I used to, when I was younger, by the way, not recently, I used to love going to Woolworths with my siblings and friends to, to fill up a, a bag of pick-and-mix sweets, picking out a whole array of sweets with our hands and fingers. I don't suppose that would be very good secure. Well, the teacher sets out to test the pleasures of life like a, like a pick and mix stand. So he tries some wine. He tries creative projects. He tries saving and amassing great wealth. He tries entertainment. He tries sex. And what does he discover? He discovers that as ends in themselves, the pleasures of this life are hebel. Whether you take up drink or give it up, you find romance or leave it behind, you dye your hair or allow it to gray, you turn to junk food or join a gym. The teacher's message is there is nothing in this world that can truly and fully satisfy your cravings. Verse 10, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. Yet, verse 11, Everything was hebel, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. You know, the lie of almost every single advertisement we see today is that you can gain things under the sun. You can find satisfaction and fulfillment if you only take hold of what they're offering. Um, the brand promise, for example, of Starbucks is to inspire and nurture the human spirit, one person, one cup, and one neighborhood at a time. Now, I love coffee as much as the next person, but I've never found it particularly inspiring and nurturing of my human spirit, uh, a spirit, especially Starbucks. Please don't sue me. So how do you think about creation? Should we disregard the world's goods and just put up with being miserable until heaven? Or should we grab what we can while we have the chance? Uh, cope diem, we might say, and, and just take hold of things. Carpe diem, rather. <laughs> Sorry, uh, 
linguist amongst us. The, the teacher, um, the teacher's perhaps surprising answer to both of those perspectives is no. Look down with me to verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 24 and 25 again. A man can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in his work. This too, I see, is from the hand of God. For without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? In chapter 3, verse 12 and 13, I know that there's nothing better for men than to be happy and to do good while they live. That everyone may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all his toil. This is the gift of God. Just because the pleasures of this life are hebel in and of themselves, here one minute and gone the next, it does not mean that we should overlook them or shun good things. I wonder if you ever feel guilty for having fun, for enjoying art, taking time to listen to music. It's not very useful, is it? Do you feel bad for spending money on a hobby or going out for dinner or taking a holiday? If so, why? Just because things under the sun are hevel does not mean that they're inherently bad for us. Quite the opposite if we recognize their limitations and the hand from which they came. God is the giver. He is the creator of all good things. And his purpose in giving them to us is to show us that he himself is humanity's chief good. Remembering that, remembering our creator, as the teacher tells us in, in chapter 12, enables us actually to affirm and enjoy creation as gift. Creation is, is not garbage, nor is it something to be gained. It is gift. In Grow Group on Thursday, we touched on this a bit, and um, Nicola, my wife, shared a really insightful way of looking at this. She, she talks about holding things with open palms. As we receive these gifts from the Lord, we do so humbly, gladly, and in worship. Corey Ten Boone said something similar. She said, hold everything in your hands lightly. Otherwise, it hurts when God prizes your fingers open. We cannot have everything, but we can and should enjoy what God freely gives. So of all people, Christians should know the joy of life. Second, the quest for meaning in the pursuit of wisdom. Chapter 2, verse 12. Then I turn my thoughts to consider wisdom and also madness and folly. What more can the king's successor um, Oh, I've misread, I've mistyped that. Um, what more can the king's successor do than what has already been done? I'm not an expert, but um, I, I must have lost count how many times I've said that over the past two years. Not without good reason. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a virologist. I'm not a, an economist. I'm not a, a modeler. So you'd be wise to take what I say, for example, about uh, things related to COVID scenarios with a pinch of salt. Likewise, if you wanted to learn about medieval French literature, you'd be better off listening to Jonathan Patterson than to me. 
Wisdom is better than folly. Light is better than dark. That said, as even the, the best of experts will hopefully tell you, the more you know, the more you realize just how far short you are at arriving at knowledge. The teacher says in chapter 1, verse 17, then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also madness and folly, but I learned that this too is a chasing after the wind. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. Our wisdom is always limited. We cannot see everything. We cannot master the world. And no amount of wisdom can change the course of our destiny. Chapter 2, verse 15. Then I thought in my heart, the fate of the fool will overtake me also. What then do I gain by being wise? I said in my heart, this too is hevel. For the wise man, like the fool, will not be long remembered. In the days to come, both will be forgotten. Like the fool, the wise man too must die. Again, that doesn't mean that the pursuit of wisdom is bad. Uh, the teacher pursues wisdom at the same time as seeing wisdom's limitations. But if you pin your hopes on what you or experts seemingly know, whether they're scientists, virologists, theologians, life coaches, whatever, you will be left severely disappointed. Instead, again, the humble recognition of our human limitations and the limitations of others will lead us to a far, far better place, far stronger ground. Here's another personal example. I gave one last week. Um, this is another one. Two of the people that I most looked up to as mentors um, in, in the faith and, and in ministry are no longer in ministry for reasons of moral failure. And it was devastating for me to witness that happen. And at least with one of them, I was um, in close proximity to what happened. And for a time, I felt disoriented by that and unsteady because much of what I learned about the faith and ministry and everything else came from them. I felt I had nowhere else to go. But you know, it was also an immensely formative time going through that. Because through it, I realized that I was in fact building my foundations on sand, not on the solid, immovable rock of Christ. It was the same for the Corinthian church. You know, they all had their favorite... If you want to see wisdom embodied, look to him. If you want to know wisdom, look to our all-wise God who is all-seeing and all-knowing, not to those who stumble and fall and fail. The reality, especially in these times, is that we do not know everything. Even when things seem obvious to me or you or like common sense, as creatures, let alone as sinners, Whatever we know is only ever partial. And anything we do know is a gift from above, not from ourselves. That perspective on wisdom and knowledge is humbling. 
but it's also freeing. Because to say, I don't know, is actually the voice of faith. I don't know recognizes that we are mere creatures dependent on an all-wise God. And the wonderful thing is, the more we look to his light, which he freely gives, the more we'll be able to see, to see truly. So be happy in what you don't know. Be happy in the wisdom of God, even when it seems to us like a mystery. Be free to say, I don't know, but God does. Third, the quest for meaning in the purpose of work. Just imagine the, the buzz of that Roman settlement again. Imagine the busy marketplace, blacksmiths hammering metals into shape, the smell of freshly baked flatbreads coming out of brick ovens, potters selling ornate plates and bowls and drinking vessels and whatever, people coming and going with goods along that wide, busy road. But what was it all for? After all, all that's apparently left of their work are some fascinating artifacts for us to, to dig up and display in a museum. What's your work for? How do you look at it? For, you know, for most adults, work occupies most of our waking hours uh, for the entirety of our lives. And if you're still at school, um, work can sometimes take up even more time, you know, evenings with homework and weekends too. What's it all for? Is work just a means to an end, a way of making money to pay the bills, put food on the table, pay for travel, and do what life's really all about? Is work just a, a necessary evil, but something to be avoided if possible? Is work a, a, a way of finding worth or fulfillment or purpose? What is work for? work into something it's not, you'll inevitably find it frustrating. It will be grievous and dissatisfying because, again, like anything else, work as an end in itself is hebel, a chasing after the wind. Trying to grab hold of it or elevating it or pursuing it above all else will make you restless. And it's then that work becomes toil. A very sad example of this is from Japan, where um, there is an extreme attitude in some companies towards work. A recent study showed that in Japan, only 52% of the workplace take paid annual leave, the, the annual leave that they're entitled to. And there, they actually have a word to describe death from overwork, karoshi, because it's such a common experience, occurrence. Make work into something it's not by overvaluing it. But you know, you can also make work into something it's not by undervaluing it. Um, the fact that there was work in Eden says something very, very important. Work is an integral part of what it means to be human. The man and the woman were placed in the garden to work and to take care of it. Even before the fall, human beings were made to work. It's part of our very design to, to cultivate, to create, to tend, to fill. And so when, you're, when you work, whether you're an artist, a teacher, 
a shop assistant, an accountant, an engineer, a student, a volunteer, or a homemaker, whether you're learning an instrument, paying your bills, serving someone in need, or changing nappies. You are, in fact, enacting your humanity. You are doing what God gave you to do. Here's what the teacher says in chapter 2, verse 24 again. A man can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in his work. This, too, I see, is from the hand of God. For without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? There is satisfaction in knowing that God has made and designed you to cultivate the earth in those ways. As an offering to God who made you to work, there is innate value in what you do. Remember that when you find work frustrating, or you think that what you do has no value, or it's devalued by others. Your work is a gift of God given to fulfill in faith and obedience to him. In our plans for the future, uh, this is mainly chapter 3, verses 1 to 15, and um, we don't have time to look at verses 16 to the rest of the chapter, so we'll, we'll come back to those next week. But do you, like me, sometimes wish you could just press pause on life? Uh, like a smart TV, perhaps. Uh, when I need a break or, or, or rest or things get a bit too much, it would be really, really nice just to press pause for a while. Maybe have a, have a nap. Or, or to rewind life and make things better when they went wrong. Or perhaps even to fast forward past all of the difficult bits. To, to fast forward through the COVID pandemic, maybe. The reality is, as we all know well, time is not like that. And the future, says C.S. Lewis, is something which everyone reaches at the rate of 60 minutes an hour, whatever he does, whoever he is. It's the same for everyone under the sun. That's what the teacher says at the beginning of chapter 3. There is a time for everything and a season for every activity under heaven. Now, I don't think that only means that there's a time to adopt different approaches for different circumstances, gather, scatter, whatever. More significantly than that, even, I think this expresses how the times and seasons just keep beating on regardless. According to God's sovereign reign over all time and space, one day brings joy, another brings sorrow. Babies are born and people die. Times of war give way to times of peace. We as creatures simply cannot control God's time. Neither can we determine God's ways. Now, if we grasp that, how does that affect our plans and expectations? Might embracing our inability to change the times, as well as the idea of, of God's timelessness actually serve to increase our faith and give us contentment, enabling us to live through whatever the season. You know, it's very tempting to look at the COVID pandemic as a waste of time. 
but according to God's inscrutable ways, nothing is wasted. A mystery, perhaps, sure, but not wasted. Even in this season of uprooting, our sovereign God is working his wise and, and good purposes out. And with the eyes of faith, we'll be able to see the beauty of God's ways. Not least in the way he mediates Christ's presence to us through the ups and downs of life. Christ, the eternal and unbounded Son, who took on our limited and boundless nature in order to draw us into the permanent fellowship of God forever. Whatever the season, not even if it's the last day you have on earth, nothing can take that from you. Well, having journeyed with the teacher in his quest for meaning, um, let's simply close in the same way as last week. Being reminded of the perspective we need to remember our creator. Because in all times and in all things, as God's creatures and his children in Christ, we need to look above the sun to live beneath it. Doing so will provide both a, a realism, a, a right expectation about life, but also a great joy and enjoyment of life under the sun and into eternity. Let's close by reading these words from chapter 3, verse 9 to 15. What does the worker gain from his toil? I have seen the burden God laid on men. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity into the hearts of men, yet they cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. I know there is nothing better for men than to be happy and to do good while they live that everyone may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all his toil. This is the gift of God. I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken away. God does it so that men will revere him. Whatever is has already been and whatever will be has been before. And God will call the past to account. Let's pray. Our wonderful, sovereign, good, wise, powerful, and loving God, we praise and thank you that you have made us. You give us good things to enjoy. You give us work to do. You provide us with wisdom to live. Help us we pray to acknowledge and to embrace our limitations, our creatureliness, that we might look to you who is unlimited in power, unconstrained by time and space, and therefore able to be present to us at all. And we praise and thank you for Christ who in his flesh took on our creatureliness, our creaturehood, to bring us into your life. We ask that you would enable us by the Spirit to walk in him today and always. Amen.